From the Roaring Twenties to the Great Depression, in a time when America was caught between two world wars, crooks and cons made New York City their playground. On this morning cityscape, we'll go back in time to the 1920s and 30s, when notorious criminals ruled the city streets. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. New York City has its fair share of crime, but at least we don't have to duck bullets at the bank. Well, at least not anymore. In the 1920s and 30s, brazen bank robberies were a daily occurrence. The city was full of gangsters, bandits, and outlaws, men and women, who made headlines all the time. Joining us now to talk about some of them is Patrick Downey. He's been studying New York City's early 20th century crime scene for more than 15 years. And he's written a new book called Bad Seeds in the Big Apple. Hey, Patrick. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You open the book with the story of the so-called gentleman bandit. Gerald Chapman. Tell us about him. He was uh, your basic thug criminal in uh, 1907 period up to 1920 he'd uh, sneak into houses or whatever you're your basic thief but then he got put away in jail for a long time and he uh, met a guy there named uh, Dutch Anderson who was very well educated and he himself became very well educated and um, they were both paroled about the same time and became partners in crime and ended up pulling off to at that time in 1921 the most lucrative theft that era, over a million dollars worth of stolen bonds from a mail truck and lived like royalty. But like all criminals, they got caught. <laughs> and yeah, both went to the penitentiary at Atlanta. And he was hanged. He was hanged. He broke out of Atlanta and uh, went on a little crime spree, but they caught him. And he was hung in Connecticut for a murder he may or may not have committed. If he was put to trial today, chances are he'd be exonerated. How come? It was more of a political moved by uh, the uh, DA. They were out to get him. They were out to get him. And then there's more to it. He should have gone back to Atlanta to fill out his full sentence of 20 years. But uh, the DA, who was good friends with President Hoover, pardoned him. (laughs) So they pardoned him from his uh, 20-year crime so he could be hung. Mm. How come he was buried in unmarked grave? He was very famous in his day, and they didn't want uh, people to come and chip off parts of his tombstone and souvenir hunter, just like today. People would, you know, flock to the infamous grave and take their little souvenirs and pieces, and you don't want hundreds or thousands of people tramping around your cemetery in general and also stealing the stuff. Is he buried here in New York City? He's buried in Connecticut. Criminal behavior in the 1920s was, in many ways, a family affair. You had a lot of gangs that had siblings as members. The Flanagan brothers are an example of that. If you grew up poor, you know, destitute, if your big brothers were, you know, making some decent dough in crimes, then... Of course, you're going to follow them right there. There were a couple of other brothers, the McKenna brothers. Mm-hmm. John and Michael, yep. Same thing, just armed bandits, payroll robbers. You know, it was just so easy back then. Uh, hospitals got ripped off on payday, bakeries, schools, anything. No no one was off limits. Any Anybody that uh, had a payroll to fill. Let's talk about the Cowboy Tesler mob. Cowboy Tesler, he was um, actually a college-educated guy. Come across a few of those. Graduated college, went into business for himself but didn't really take the 9 to 5 too well, and he had a few uh, friends on the outside. They brought him along on a job, and he was hooked, and there's probably about, at any given time, seven or eight of them, and they're more small-time stuff, ripping off token clerks or a gas station and whatnot. But they were um, prolific in their robberies. They could do two or three of them a day, so they racked up 80 or so uh, jobs in the course of a few months. 
police did a pretty good job back then in terms of catching these guys. Yeah, there's a shakeup in the detective department of New York. They came out with a new detective school. You know, we got to fight these criminals. And okay, so we got this new detective school, and uh, they told the old detectives, you either take it, take these courses or whatnot. It's a new school, or lose your job. You go back to being a flatfoot or whatever. And some of the detectives were like, you know, well, I don't want to do that. So they got demoted. And at that time, whenever they made arrests, chances are is because of a stool pigeon. You know, someone from the gang or who owed them a favor because they got them out of jail or let them go or whatever. And so all these new detectives didn't have this network of stoolies. So uh, there's all the press about the new detectives are coming. And then when they got on the force, there were no arrests. And that's mm. actually when Cowboy Tesla was really going crazy. He was new to them. They didn't know who he was. So they had to start from scratch. And it was uh, one of the old school detectives who broke the case. It was kind of like a <laughs> to the police commissioner, you know. Some of them did, though, do pretty good detective work. There was one case where they solved it because one of the crooks left behind a straw hat. Yeah, uh, the crybabies. <laughs> yeah. They uh, pulled a job in the Bronx, and um, they actually, when they were coming out to get back in their car, it was a failed attempt. They tried to rob this small bank, but they had guns, and they run out to their car, and as they were climbing in, uh, one of the guys accidentally shot his friend, and it was a real bad wound, so they dropped him off at a corner and said, you know, someone will call an ambulance for you. So they drop him off. He ends up dying. The cops pick him up. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what happened. I was walking down the street, got hit by a bullet, whatever. So they dumped the car and uh, the straw hat was in there. And they could uh, trace it to the store by the band that was in there. And they said, you know, who came in in the last few days to purchase hats like this? And they brought in the mug shots. And yeah, that guy. <laughs> and they knew who his friends were. And so they just rounded him up that way. You mentioned that they were called the Crybabies. Why were they called the Crybabies? Originally, they were the Oberst Gang or the Blue Sedan Gang because they always use the Blue Sedan. But uh, once they were all picked up and uh, in custody, they started bringing in uh, witnesses from different jobs. And witnesses are like, yeah, that's the guy and that's the guy. And once all these people started pointing them out, they broke down in tears. They're like, no, no, it wasn't me. We didn't do it. Because <laughs> on some of the jobs, uh, a cop got shot and wounded real bad and there's a chance he was going to die. They knew that meant the chair. So they started crying. Oh, no, we didn't do it. It wasn't us. And they were young guys, 1920. The press dubbed them the crybaby gang. That actually struck me quite a bit throughout the book in reading about these criminals, how young most of them were in their late teens, early 20s. I've seen as low as like, you know, 15 to 17. And if you can get five grand, you know, in 1925, when the yearly take-home pay is probably like 700 bucks, that's a big deal. At least one criminal blamed the Prohibition era, right? Prohibition itself for his crime spree. It was such a lawless period, especially during Prohibition, because, you know, you had the cops on the take and you had judges on the take. And back then, especially like with the death penalty, they were just, you know, zapping people left and right. And young ones, 19, 20, 21. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now you hear about, you know, someone getting electrocuted every few months. and But back then it was zap, 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 zap. You know. And a lot of them, if you read it, you just think like, you know, maybe he was innocent. Because with the technology they have now, you know, he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's been on death row for 20 years back then. Well, he was within two blocks. He probably did something wrong anyway. So zap, you know, <laughs> even if he didn't, did it, he did something wrong. The Crybaby Gang, didn't they model themselves after an earlier gang? Um, the Whittemores, mm-hmm. the Whittemore gang. Yeah, 1926, Richard Reese Whittemore, him and his gang, they were big jewel thieves. They knocked off the jewelry stores all around the city. And uh, again, hugely popular for like a year. They're on the New York Times, you know, first page news along with Gerald Chapman. So they're like, well, look how much money they made. If we make a fraction of that, we'll be all right. They would emulate, yeah, these guys with these nice suits and big fancy cars and we can do that. Get a couple of handguns, and but we'll be careful. We'll get away with it. We won't leave our hat in a cart. 
Darn. <laughs> there was one jeweler in particular that was targeted several times, but he fought back. He did. Aaron Rodak, the fighting jeweler. He was uh, kept a gun behind his uh, counter, and uh, some bandits came in one day, pulled out their guns, saying, you know, it's a robbery, whatever. He pulled out his gun and um, started shooting, chased them out. He actually ran out to the street, firing at them as they got in their car and drove away. And, you know, everybody in the neighborhood was like, hooray, yay, someone's fighting back, and they cheer for him. And a number of months go by, another car pulls up, group of bandits run in to try to rob him again, pulls out his gun again, a forty five, starts banging away at him, chases them out in the street, and starts firing at him as they drive away, and this time he hit a guy and ended up killing him, killing a bandit. And once again, you know, he's, hooray, people cheer, killed a bandit. But he actually felt bad about that. It didn't sit well with him for some reason. You know, he didn't feel good about killing the guy, but he said, you know, whenever they come in here, this is what they're going to get. And the third time, uh, bandits came in, and he pulled out his gun, chased him from the store again, shoot out, and he was firing at them as they were driving down the street, and they fired back and hit him in the head. He died. People were outraged. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a local hero, and again, the sign of the times, you know, this was an era when you had teams of our bandits day after day, you know, attacking the city. It was, you know, it wasn't like a rare occurrence. It was just every day. One of New York's most notorious killers at the time was a guy by the name of Francis Two-Gun Crowley. Right. He was, I call him King of the Punks. He was basically just had a punk, another one, 19 years old. His uh, stepbrother had killed a cop a few years earlier. Actually, he died too in the shootout. And so he wasn't too popular in the neighborhood with the cops. And they would bring him in every once in a while and knock him around. And he was just a car thief, really. And then he got involved with some guys, and uh, he was involved in a shooting at some dance, a local dance. And then he was on the police radar, and they tried to pick him up. And one detective found him at uh, his brother-in-law's workplace, and there was a shootout there, and he wounded him, the detective, and got away. So now they, you know, okay, this guy's a little something now. We're going to pick him up. A few months later, he was, him and his buddy were out there at a dance hall having fun with their friends or whatever, and his buddy was hot for this one dancer who worked there, and they all went for a joyride afterwards, and... Uh, the girl told his friend, you know, I'm getting married. No offense, you're a nice guy, but this isn't going anywhere. And he shot her. And Crowley was driving the car, so they dumped her body. And uh, the detectives did the work, figured out that Crowley was driving. So now it's like, okay, he shot a detective, and he you know, was involved with the girl's murder. Now he's really hot. A few nights later, he's out on Long Island with his girlfriend. And they're in, like, you know, a little place where people go to park and kiss and whatnot. And two cops approach him, you know, look at him, whatever, ask him some questions, and then they leave, leave him alone. And then the one cop's like, you know, I think that's Crowley. So he goes back to the car, goes to pull out his gun, and his gun jams, gives Crowley time to pull out his, and Crowley shoots him, kills him. Now he's, you know, uber famous <laughs> with the press, killed a cop and this other girl, and uh, they trace him to a house on the Upper West Side, a boarding house, and he's on the top floor. And so they find out, and they know he's there. They some cops go in and they surround the area and they have cops on the roofs of the surrounding buildings and they go to get him. He hears them coming, starts shooting through the wall, and it turns into this huge police siege that lasted about an hour and a half. You had cops firing in from these different buildings and chopping holes in the ceiling, dropping tear gas, and thousands of people around gathering around uh, the block at the bottom. You have pictures of that in the book, yeah. this massive crowd watching this standoff go on. It's kind of funny because he was a punk, but there's other uh, examples of like the hardened criminals who drop their guns right away and give up. And he was, you know, running window to window with his <laughs> little gun shooting out and you're not taking me alive, boom, boom. And finally they nicked him four or five times and they got gas through the ceiling and he's like, okay, I give up. <laughs> Isn't this the guy who said that he killed police officers because he had nothing better nothing to do? Better to do. Yeah, he killed one and wounded the other detective, so it's not like he went around, you know. 
But yeah, they said, you know, why'd you do it? I didn't have anything better to do. <laughs> There's an excuse that'll hold up in court pretty nice, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things, I guess just like today with video games and stuff, people at the time are saying, we got to stop these movies. It's the movies that are doing it, you know? Like, our movies are so violent. No wonder we have people like Crowley running around. James Nannery was known as New York's most desperate criminal. But you're not so sure if he was actually the most desperate. No, because there's really, there's a lot of, we think he did this, we think he did that, but there's no proof that he did that. He was, he was definitely a bad guy. You know, he was part of the, we were talking about the McKenna brothers. He was part of their gang, and he ended up going to Sing Sing, put away. And he escaped from Sing Sing. You know, there's really no no proof that he was involved with you know, some bank robberies here in Jersey, in New York, and um, possibly the murder of a policeman, actually in Fordham, I believe. <laughs> I'd have to check the book. Uh, at a hospital ward here, they went to either rescue a friend or kill a friend, a former friend. And there was a guard there at the hospital, and uh, they ended up shooting him with a shotgun. And it was, uh, they say it was Nannery. And um, it couldn't possibly well have been. But he managed to stay uh, free for about three years. And finally, um, as the, again, the Daily News said, why is this guy still at large? <laughs> it's been three years. What are the police doing? So the police are, oh, oh okay, he's, you know, he's in the news again. We better do something. And because they did something, they ended up catching him. But in the end, he just went back to jail for the robbery he was originally incarcerated for. I'm no doubt some time added on for his escape, but they never were able to pin any of the other things they said he did on him. So was he the most desperate? Who knows? But when they caught him, you know, he had his machine guns. and So he's definitely a, a bad guy, but who knows exactly how bad. You write about a few prison breaks in the book. Which to you is the most interesting, the most brazen prison break? Brazen would be the tombs with Amberg and uh, Robert Berg and John McKenna. And Amberg was the one who killed Rodak, the fighting jeweler. And they all happened to be in the tombs at the same time. And it was brazen in the fact that they just went on a blasting spree, killing guards and having a huge, massive shootout again with machine guns. Uh, it failed, and they all got killed. Right there in lower Manhattan. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, some of the pictures made the book. There's some other ones I didn't make the book. But, you know, you have the they had machine guns coming in again. They cops went up in the surrounding buildings and da 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 So this big, huge shootout. And, of course, it you know it failed because uh, they jumped too soon to try to get out. So they got a little too excited. The front door was right there in front of them, but a guard was able to close it. And so they tried to get out another way and got themselves surrounded. An armored car heist in Brooklyn at a Brooklyn ice plant netted the thieves $427,000. Mm-hmm. A lot of money back then. Yeah, biggest cash robbery at the time. How did they pull it off? They did their homework. <laughs> Actually, they didn't know how much money was going to be in the armored car because this is uh, like 1934 we're talking now. So, you know, I mean, they've had better part of a dozen years to figure out how to battle the bandits. They knew an armored car stopped every day at the ice plant, but they didn't know when because as part of the armored car's plan, they mixed up the itinerary every week just so no one would know who stopped them or how much money was there. But they knew it was going to stop there. So some of the guys dressed up like ice peddlers and put a machine gun in a little cart, stood outside the plant waiting for, pretending to wait for, you know, an ice delivery while other guys just kind of walked up and down the street. And once the armored car got there, things went into action quick. One of the guys on the outlook gave the sign and sedans pull off. They get the armored car guys under guns and um, go back, open the door, see all this bags of cash. and like, woohoo! Actually had to pull out the backseat of their car to make room for it all. <laughs> Threw all the money into the back of the car, made their getaway, you know, in a couple minutes flat, had it timed, and they knew with a robbery like that, it was going to be almost impossible to get out of Brooklyn. These guys had boats ready. They had boats ready. They drove to a pier, dumped the cars, threw all the cash on their boats, 
and made an escape by water while the cops were running around Brooklyn looking for him. They, though, were eventually caught and brought to justice. Well, one of them didn't make it. He was getting onto the boat with his shotgun. He bumped aside and blew off his kneecap. <laughs> hmm. So they took him with him to the hideout, but he died a few days later. So they chopped him up, put him in a <laughs> traveling crate, and just put him out on the curb so the garbage would pick him up. Just part of a day's work. <laughs> yeah, but, but he was bleeding. Someone noticed blood coming from the trunk, so they picked him up. But, yeah, the cops came out, and they're like, oh, we'll have this cleared up in 48 hours. And it took about five years. And most of the guys were already in jail for something else, so they never really... <laughs> I think four of them ended up going on trial for the actual uh, heist itself. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Our guest this morning is Patrick Downey. He's the author of a new book called Bad Seeds in the Big Apple. It tells the stories of a whole bunch of bad guys and gals who terrorized New York City in the 1920s and 30s. More of our discussion in just a moment. to me too how many of these guys just quickly admitted their acts didn't take a lot of time they just said yeah i did it you know what i did that one too and that one as well Mm -hmm. were they proud of it what was it i think some of them like nannery's one of the guys who did that i did this i did that and that i think the attitude was you're going to find out about it anyways or you already know about it or i can admit it but i there's no corroboration so you can't take me to court for it and i'll just deny it at the time i was joking also, if they did admit it and just say, you know, pled guilty, it usually uh, was better for them prison-wise as opposed to a long, drawn-out trial and then, you know, going to jail anyways. What's the deal with the guy who stole radios throughout uh, New York City? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's one of my favorites in a weird way. He was a nut. He was a baseball freak. He wanted to play professional baseball. Yeah, he was just a small-time robber. He'd break into a house and he'd steal radios, the radio bandit. But he's picked this one neighborhood in Queens he just kept going back to, and he'd just walk into a house and grab the radio and walk to the subway, come back to the city, and there was a fence he knew he'd go and sell it to this guy. And he did like two dozen of them just, you know, every other night, boom, boom. And uh, a lot of cops actually got fired because uh, they are saying, you know, he's hitting the same neighborhood. How can you guys not catch him? <laughs> I don't know. We don't see him. And it's not like he was being sneaky. He would just take the subway out there, walk, find a door that's open or break in and grab a radio. And they asked him, why radios? He's like, oh, I like music. Of all the, you know, things to grab, he'd go in, take the radio, come back, sell it for like 10 bucks. But then he, he uh, ended up being dangerous as well. Um, some detectives were coming in, you know, cruising around one night and they see him walking. You know, who's this guy? So they're like, hey, who are you? They start questioning him. And he's like, oh, I'm legitimate. He pulls out an ID card. And while they're looking at it, he pulls out a gun, boom, boom, shoots him, runs. And he runs away, and cops chase him, but he gets away, so cops got in trouble from that. There were two of you. How did he get away? You know, he's fast. And uh, he was because he wanted to be a baseball player, so he's mm. always training. <laughs> and um, there's a couple episodes where, you know, again, he was caught at this house, and uh, cops chasing him. He runs down an alley. Cop comes down, pretends to be a cop. He's like, hey, I'm a cop, too. He went that way. And the cop's like, oh, okay. And then he shoots a cop and runs. They ended up uh, catching him. I guess it would have been it's Giant Stadium, if I remember correctly. Opening day. I forget exactly how now they how they traced him, but he dropped his wallet, I think, at one of the shootouts. And uh, the fake ID was a guy he went to jail with. And they looked this found this guy up because there was only three people in New York with that name. 
so they questioned each of them and they're like do you know you know any idea who this could be he goes yeah i think it might be a guy named paul hilton <laughs> i did some time with and you now they learned about what a baseball nut he was and so they went to uh opening day for the giants when he was in prison he played third base so they said we'll probably try to sit in your third base so the cops you know just walking around the stadium entrances waiting for him and sure enough come toddling towards the third base entrance there he is and they come up to him he tried to pull the gun hey no i'm legitimate let me get out my id he goes to pull a gun but they're waiting for him and just thumped him with their pistols his mm-hmm. pistols and took him away he the rest is history the, yeah he got the chair so in the 1930s there was a confrontation between the nypd and the fbi over the arrest of a career criminal mm-hmm. what was that all about uh harry Burnett. he was a bank robber he was actually from the midwest but uh, he was hiding out in new york you know, a lot of people think uh, most gangsters head out in Chicago or St. Paul, which a lot of them did, but New York was a pretty good town to head out to. And he had a girlfriend here in New York, but they're heading back to the Midwest, and a New Jersey motorcycle cop pulled him over for speeding or something like that. And so he came to the car, they draw their guns, kidnap him, make him get in the car, and they release him in Pennsylvania. So now they're kidnappers too, so the FBI gets involved. And this is at the time, you know, the mid-30s, when the G-Men were the biggest thing, you know, the movies and comic books. And they're more interested in headlines than anything else. So they trace uh, Burnett here to uh, his apartment here in New York. And now you had the NYPD, the FBI, and the New Jersey State Police all working together to uh, bring him in because they all wanted him. So they're working together. Now, okay, we know where he is. And they were tailing him. They knew he slept most of the day and went out at night. And the best time to get him would be like 5 or 6 in the morning or something like that. So, you know, they have a watch out and they plan, okay, we're going to on this day at this time. A night or so before that was supposed to happen, Hoover's in town with Clyde Tolson, you know, his uh, number two man. And like, you know, what's happening with Brunette? Well, we got him, you know, located here and there's a couple of detectives keeping an eye on the place in case he leaves. But everything's still as planned. We'll go in and get him today when he's sleeping. Hoover's like, ah, let's go get him right now. I'm in town. Clyde's in town. We could use the headlines, you know. So the FBI pulls up and right before they get there, one of the detectives went off to get coffee and the other one's like, what's going on? We're taking him now. That's not part of the plan. Well, it's the plan now. So uh, they go in charge of the machine guns and tear gas and uh, turns into a shootout, of course. And you have uh, all the other people living in the building who weren't, you know, evacuated or anything. And you got tear gas going up through their apartments. Someone calls the fire department. The fire department comes because the bomb, tear gas bomb started a fire. So you had firefighters trying to fight the fire and come in from the ceiling and, you know, FBI guys shooting and holding them off, you know. And so the NYPD saying, look, we could have caught him without any fanfare at all. You just want the headlines. You need splash because you're the G-men. And Hoover's like, oh, you're acting like children. Who cares who caught him? Just as long as we got him, you know. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's your attitude because you got the headlines you wanted. And, you know, there's pictures of Clyde Tolson, you know, carrying him away in handcuffs and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, they didn't get along too well after that. Mm. You write about a lot of bad guys, but there were also some bad girls in the 1920s including Cecilia Cooney. Mm-hmm. The bob-haired bandit, mm-hmm. of course. Not really career criminals, her, her and her husband, Ed. Ed. Mm-hmm. Ed. They were a married young couple, and she was pregnant. They were getting by, but they weren't living, you know, extravagantly. And they said, you know, we need some money, you know. We both grew up kind of poor. We need money. We want our baby to do better than we did. We want to have some nice stuff. And again, all the headlines are about all these huge robberies and people getting away with thousands and thousands. So Ed's like, you know, why don't we give it a shot? We'll have one big score. They'll set us up with enough money for the baby. So they're like, okay. So uh, Ed goes out, gets himself a gun. And uh, Cecilia is, you know, reads uh, crime magazines or whatever to get the lingo down. Stick them up. 
hey, you mugs or whatever. <laughs> and they practice there in the apartment. So it's a big night. They go out to a drugstore, rob it to get like 100 bucks or something, which, of course, is huge back then. Wow, we did it. Oh, it's great. So, so the next day they go out and buy a whole bunch of furniture. Well, now that money's gone because they bought furniture. We still need money for the baby. Let's do another job. So they go out. They do another job. Oh, that one only got us 30 bucks. So another job and another job just kept turning into another job and another job. And for the better part of three months, they're do- pulling these jobs. And again, you know, the public's like, how is the police not catching these guys? And, you know, and everybody's just like, well, the it's a guy. And uh, his uh, girl companion, who's like five foot tall with bob hair, <laughs> shouldn't be too hard to find. And the fact that it was a gun girl was a huge media splash. Like, oh, my God. And she had bob hair. You know, it was the early 20s. And, oh, my gosh, this bob-haired girl is going around with a gun. So it was a huge media sensation. They did arrest a woman, though it was not Cecilia. But this couple had a conscience. They wrote a letter saying, release this woman. Right. We're yeah. still out here. Obviously, the police were under a lot of pressure to pick her up, so they picked up some other woman and said, we got her. Case closed. The Coonies were like, send the letters, you know, you know it's not her. And to prove it, they put in some things only the bob-haired bandit would know from a job. And so they had to admit, yeah, it wasn't her. So they had to let her go. But they also had copycats, short guys putting on wigs, you know, and (laughs) other gun girls running and do stuff. But when she got caught, it was huge. She drew a huge crowd when police brought her in. There were all of these people out there waiting to catch a glimpse of her. Yeah. It was a President Coolidge, I think, had just been at the train station, and there's you know a crowd there. And the president's in town. They go to see her. But there's a bigger mob there to see her You know, the same day. Oh, got to see the bob-haired bandit. You know, huge media circus and pictures and wow. And yet she ended up selling her story to the newspaper for like $1,000, which is... Three times as much as they paid during <laughs> during their robberies. Vivian Gordon was another bad girl of the day. Mm-hmm. She was killed. She was killed. And her murder never solved. Basically solved, but uh, the killers were uh, exonerated because they had a... Uh, on record, though. On, yeah. Never solved. On record, mm-hmm. it's still considered unsolved. She was uh, wrapped up with her lawyer and just trying to put it in a nutshell. There's just thousands of dollars wrapped up with her lawyer and her lawyer's friends. And her crooked lawyer's like, okay, you know, it's time for her to go. He got uh, another crook who he'd uh, represented in a trial, and he owed him like 1500 bucks for it. So he's like, you know, hey, you want to even it up? Take care of her. So he called her up one night, and he's like, hey, I got this sucker with a quarter million dollars worth of diamonds, you know, and he's, you know, looking to meet someone. And she's like, fine, you know. They take a cab up to the Bronx, and there's a limousine waiting for him, and she gets in and sees this other guy. Who she doesn't know, she who assumes just some rich guy with a bunch of diamonds, and she's like, you know, hey, where you been all my life? And they get in the car, and Harry Stein who set the whole thing up, starts punching her in the head, and they knock her down onto the floor, and he pulls out some uh, clothesline, wraps it around her neck, they choke her, dump her body, and um, but she left a couple of diaries, and for a couple of years she was saying, my lawyer's gonna kill me <laughs> in a bunch of different ways. My lawyer's gonna kill me. I think it's coming now. Whatever, just. Just kept saying, my lawyer, my lawyer's going to kill me. And the cops got a hold of it, so they bring the lawyer in. But they couldn't really prove anything with the lawyer. But they were able to get her actual killers because they grabbed her jewelry and they stripped her of her jewelry and mink coat after they killed her and tried to sell it. And so they got a bunch of witnesses, you know, underworld sorts, saying, yeah, they showed me the coat, asked me if I wanted to buy it. And then the guy who uh, acted as a chauffeur, they broke him, and he's like, here's the story of what happened. They all went to court and did it, and uh, their lawyer said, you know, look, you need reasonable doubt. Here's a reasonable doubt. Every witness they brought is in the underworld, so they could be lying. And so the jury's like, okay. <laughs> Boom. Free. Not guilty. Why are you so interested 
in New York City's criminal past? I don't know. I ask myself that a lot. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> do I really need to read about this stuff? These are bad people. They're not good people. I've always been enamored with that era, whether it's Hollywood, music, or whatever. I've just always liked the 20s and 30s. And I guess as a kid, I, um, the old gangster movies I liked, you know, the suits, the machine guns. And then I read a few books about it. Like, oh, that's interesting. But then I started doing my own research, and I was just like, wow. Because you, normally you get the same names over and over, especially when it comes to bandits. It's just kind of one of the reasons I wrote this book. You, you know, in the 30s, you hear, oh, well, it's John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd and Bonnie and Clyde. That's about it. And it's so not. <laughs> I mean, they're just hundreds and hundreds in New York. You also do walking tours of the city, or you have in the past. I have. Uh, yep, I'm going to uh, actually probably start up again. I do Second Avenue. That was just a hotbed for gangs and gangsters. That one's mostly basically organized crime. And I'm looking at Chinatown and Little Italy. And uh, when you go to a restaurant to point out some bullet holes, you know, get the matron to, you, do you want a table or not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're just here to look at, you know, the guy who got killed. Do you have plans for another book sometime in the future? Yep, I'm working on a biography right now of Legs Diamond. So he's probably one of my favorite. He was, uh, again, you don't really hear much about him now, but he was... For his time, 1930, 31, he was the biggest gangster in New York, most famous. Um, him and El Capone were probably the two biggest, most famous at the time, And but Legs was just hugely, hugely popular. Well, while we wait for that book, we can read this one, Bad Seeds in the Big Apple, Bandits, Killers, and Chaos in New York City, 1920 to 1940. Patrick Downey, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. The book Bad Seeds in the Big Apple, Bandits, Killers, and Chaos in New York City, 1920-1940, is published by Cumberland House. And that's enough crime for one day, don't you think? I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Stay out of trouble.